So turn with me to the epistle of First John. And before we do our reading this morning, I guess uh, let me do some introductory statements concerning the epistle. As you're aware, we just finished um, the series in Kings Chronicles, and, and, and uh, the leadership decided to take a break from the Old Testament and to spend some time in the New Testament. And uh, we, we decided to go upon the first epistle of John here, this wonderful epistle. Now, John is an interesting character in the New Testament. He, he holds a specific or a unique position in the, in the canon of Scripture. John was uh, described as the disciple in whom Jesus loved, right? Uh, he was the one who there in the upper room would, would be reclined and would be comfortable enough to, to, to lean his head back upon the shoulder or chest of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So he had a very intimate relationship with our Lord. Uh, he was also one of the, the inner circle. You know, when, when the Lord had closed, uh, called upon the close disciples, it was Peter, James, and John that walked with him, right? When, when, when he went up to the Mount Transfigures, he, he, took, he took with him Peter, James, and John. So he was a privileged man. And, and it shows in his writings, doesn't it? When, when we read the Gospels, right? The first three Gospels, they're called synoptic Gospels, meaning the same. They have the same structure. They have pretty much the same miracles, the same stories. There's variances between them, but overall they're the same. The Gospel of John stands different in many ways. Most of its miracles are not mentioned in the other Gospels. In fact, you see the closeness of John with our Lord in that in his Gospel, John records private conversations between the Lord and another sinner. That's something we don't see in the other Gospels. When you think about that Nicodemus approached the Lord in the evening in the dark and had this, this conversation with this man who, who he was curious about, the Lord told him that story. The Lord testified to him that. Think of, uh, of his conversation there in the next chapter with that woman, the Samaritan woman, the, 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 the people which they despised. And all the disciples were out looking for food, and there was the Lord. He had an appointment with that woman. The Lord shared that story with him. And so John has a, has a, has a unique place when it comes to the New Testament. I would also like to point out that the writings of John come late in that first century. They come quite late. In fact, after the ascension, we don't read much about John, do we? In fact, if you, if you look through the book of Acts, I, 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 I'm pretty sure you'll only find his name once. Once. Mentioned in the book of Acts. You'll hear a lot about Peter. You'll hear about Philip. You'll hear about Paul. You'll hear about Luke. You'll hear about Barnabas. You'll hear about all these men and what the Lord was doing in the church that day. But you don't hear about John very much. The only other mention of John is in Galatians chapter 2. When, when Paul is giving his testimony, how the Lord called him, it says that he went to Jerusalem and met with Peter and, and James and John and Cephas, who were pillars, he called them, in the church. And I find that interesting. That as the, as the church was there as, as, as new as can be, so many men were used of the Lord. And, and here's John, the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, very quiet. Now, I'm not saying that as a, uh, as a negative thing. I, I imagine John served in whatever capacity the Lord had him to serve. And for decades we hear nothing but silence from, the, from this disciple John. But when the Spirit called upon him to open his mouth and speak, he spoke. And he spoke concerning the Christ. Concerning the Christ. You see, the, the Gospel of John 
stands unique in that it speaks to us as the Son of God. It starts, in the beginning was the Word, Logos. And the Word was with God. He takes our Lord and He elevates it higher than any other. And gives Him a place high above any other. And that's why the Gospel of John is so dear to so many people. It elevates our Lord in such a way that it warms our hearts. The epistle John is very similar. Very similar in structure, very similar in language, very similar in theme. The Gospel of John was written with a purpose. I don't know if you knew this, but John, uh, as a writer, does the, 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 the smart thing and tells us why he wrote the book. John 20, verse 31, tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John. Who can quote it? Anyone quote it? I can try to quote it, but I'm going to misquote it, so that's why I ask if someone can quote it. I'll just read it for you. John 20, 31 says this, And these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, I'm almost there. There it is. And believing you may have life in his name. And so the Gospel of John is written with the purpose to prove to you, the reader, and anyone who picks it up, that the man in this book that you're going to read about is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the chosen one. And so you read it and there's, there's seven Miracles are seven stories that depict to us clearly that he is the Christ. Now we turn to the epistle of John. Now John does tell us why he wrote it. But he wrote it for more than one reason. In fact, he wrote it for four reasons that, 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 uh, that I could find. There's, you, could, you could say there's more. But there's four verses in First John, just as an introduction, to kind of show it to you. Where he says, I have written these things because. So look down at your Bible. Hopefully you're at 1 John. Here we have the first one. We have 1 John chapter 1. And in verse 4 it says this thing. It says, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. You know, a commentator said it this way, and it makes a lot of sense to me. He says, the gospel of John was written that you may go from death to life, right? That, that, that you may know that he is a Christ, and in believing, you may have life in his name, right? The epistle of John was written that you may know you have life. And you'll see this in the purposes that he wrote. First, that you may have, you wrote these things that you may have joy, and your joy may be full. Speaking of the joy of the Christian life, look at chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. First purpose was the joy of the Christian life. The second purpose that he wrote this book is that you may not sin, that you may walk holy as he is holy. This morning we, we were brought uh, uh, there to Leviticus where the temple was and God's holiness was displayed, was it not? And God's holiness is a serious thing. And this epistle deals with it. The third reason he wrote this book in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, says this. These things have I written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. First, he wrote about the joy, that your joy may be full. Second, he wrote about holiness. Third, he wrote about truth. How to identify false teachers. He calls them antichrists. In this epistle. And lastly, in chapter 5, verse 13, we have the last reason he wrote is this. If anyone, uh, 5 verse, uh, I'm sorry, 5 verse 13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have life eternal. He wrote first so that you may have joy in your Christian life. Secondly, he wrote that you may be holy, that you may not sin. 
He wrote to warn you to be careful of false teachings. And lastly, that you may have assurance, that you may know you have eternal life. So you see the wonder, wonderful topics in which are found in this epistle. And, and for the next couple of weeks, we'll be, we'll be delving into it. We're going to take a break after, uh, for the next two weeks while Dr. Humphrey's here. But the, the rest of the men will continue with chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 and reveal these wonderful truths and the themes that are in it. There's so many different themes in this book. Now, I've, I've gone long enough in the introduction. Our, our latter portion this morning is chapter 1 and the first two verses of chapter 2. So let's, let us get into this wonderful book and ask uh, that the Lord would guide us and lead us. Let, let us read these 12 verses uh, before we begin. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and the truth and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleanses us from all sins. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation of our sins, and not ours only, but also for the whole world. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And so one of the main themes that we're going to deal with this morning is fellowship. Fellowship. This portion we're reading here is a very important portion because it dictates or it tells us how do we have fellowship with our creator how do we have fellowship with the living god and how do we maintain that fellowship and and me personally i i I know it would be hard to, to prove to you but i believe the entire epistle swings upon that the purpose of it all is fellowship with god How do you know you have fellowship with God? How do you maintain fellowship with God? And so we're going to look at this section here. The first four verses is a a prologue. And then the remainder, 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, we have three declarations, three false declarations, and three corrections. And we'll look at those... uh, as briefly as time allows. So let's look at that prologue here. One of the amazing things about this, the writings of John, is that they're simple words, and yet they are immensely profound. And he starts his epistle very much like he starts his gospel. That which was from the beginning. It's kind of ominous, kind of mysterious. What is he talking about? Well, he clarifies that as he goes on which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have handled concerning the word of life. You know, I I, I meditate upon that verse for a while, and and I I marveled at it. You know, it's for you and I, 
if you're a believer here this morning, for you to sit down and to think about the word. Think about Christ, right? Think, think about who he is, who, who he was at the beginning, who was from the beginning. You think about who, what you've heard of him. You think about what you've seen. Now, we don't see our Lord here today, but we see his fingerprints in the lives of his people, do we not? It says that they looked upon, they analyzed. We look upon the word of God. We look upon what he is, who he is, his character. And we even handle him, don't we? We are this morning. We're handling him. And, and we're marveled at it, right? But look at it from the perspective of John. Look at it from his perspective. When he penned these words, his experience was not my experience. His experience was not your experience. His experience was far greater. He was far more privileged than you and I were. You see, when John said, he that was from the beginning, I wonder, how far back did he go? Was it it just... At the beginning of his public ministry? And some would say, yes, absolutely, could be. Could it be at his inception there in, in, in Luke chapter 2, that wonderful moment in which God would come and veiled in flesh would come upon this earth? Or would he go a little further back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2? That which was from the beginning, that there where John in his gospel would say the word was with God and nothing was made that was made. Right. He took them all the way back to Genesis. I believe he's doing the same thing today, the same thing today in this passage. He's bringing you all the way back because it, the whole portion is concerning fellowship with God. When was fellowship with God broken? Genesis chapter two. You, we read that, that, that Adam and Eve would walk with their creator in the cool of the evening. What privilege did they have? They, they were able to commune with their creator in perfect communion. And sin destroyed that, did it not? Sin came and broke that and destroyed that fellowship. And, and ever since Genesis chapter 2, God has sought to redeem his people. From that moment on, he sought to redeem his people. There, with the very proclamation to Eve, that through her seed, what? That Satan, the one who deceived you, will be overcome. Through her seed. And there was that glimmer of hope, the beginning of hope. And John would bring your mind to that. That which was from the beginning. And he says, that which we heard. And now, by the way, I, I failed to mention this, but look at the pronoun he uses. He doesn't use I, but he uses we. He's not just referring to himself, but he's referring to all the other apostles, all the other believers who, who are, are claiming something. They're declaring something to us, by the way. That which we heard. And ask you, what do you think they heard? I, I imagine John and his brother James, as young young Jewish boys would grow up, they would grow up under the toolage of the synagogue, and they would hear of Moses. They would hear of, of, of the patriarchs. They would hear as God would come to Abraham and promise him a seed. And that through Abraham, all the nations of this earth will be blessed. They would learn of David and the sure mercies of David. That through David would come the Messiah. As young men, they would hear these lessons. And lo and behold, in their own lifetime, they would hear a man clothed in in camel skin, crying out to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. They They heard him cry out, come And be baptized. Come and repent. For the Messiah is coming. I wonder if John and his brother James were there. 
when John the Baptist would hush the crowd and say, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And they beheld him. And he says, That which we have seen with our own eyes. You know, it's one thing to be, to give witness by hearing something. It's another thing to see it, right? You know, we're here on a very busy street, right? We're all sitting here and we hear a, a large screech and a bang and people screaming. And somebody came, did, did you know what happened? I said, well, we, we heard a screech, we heard a bang, and we heard some screaming. Well, th- that, that helps a little bit, right? But if you were looking out that door and you saw the car hit his brakes because someone else was not doing what they're supposed to, right? You're an eyewitness to it. You, you're, you're more valuable than just hearing, right? You see, John had the privilege of seeing the Lord physically. I, I wonder if he was there at that wedding of Cana. And, and, and there was the, the, the host and, and the wine ran out. And his mother calls him to the back. And says, son, the wine ran out. What do, you, what do you want me to do, Mom? Son, the wine ran out. Okay. Let's get some water pots. Go ahead and pour it out. And there it was wine. I wonder if he was there. Well, I know he was there. There when they went back to Galilee, right? And we find that Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were back doing what they were always doing. They were in the boat fishing. And the Lord was in Galilee. And when the multitude pressed them, the multitude pressed against them, and he had nowhere to go because the water was behind him. He asked Peter, hey, Peter, can you, uh, can you just go off a little way while I teach the multitude? And he taught the multitude. And, and he taught not like any other rabbi they've ever heard before. He taught like no other man with such authority, with such grace and truth. That after what transpired there on the water, it was a miracle. It was the Lord said to Simon, Peter and Andrew, follow me. And then he walked over to James and John's boat. He said, follow me. And they forsook all. They forsook all. Oh, the things that he saw. John takes it a step further. He says, the things that we looked upon. He already said that that, that he saw him with his eyes. But now listen, the, the language is stronger here. He says, the things that they looked upon, and they looked upon intently. The idea in the Greek is that to, to, to gaze on, to analyze, to look into deeply. You know, they sat on the, under the word of our Lord many times. And they heard parables. And they could pull the Lord aside and say, Lord, what do those parables mean? Can you help us? Because I, I, I'm, I'm, we're thinking, but we're, we're not getting it, Lord. And the Lord in his grace would teach them. He can look upon the Lord as he acted. And he saw. It wasn't just a quick glance. But he walked and watched them. You know, I, sometimes I wonder. If our Lord ever broke. Because I would have broken. You know, it, it says it says there, right before the feeding of the 5,000, that John the Baptist was beheaded. His, 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 not only his earthly cousin, but, but he loved John. John the Baptist was a wonderful servant of the Lord, and he loved him. And it says that the Lord and his disciples went away to find some solitude, to find some quiet time, to find some time to themselves. And it says the multitude followed them. 
There ever was a time, humanly speaking, that you could say, listen, can I have a moment of peace? Can I just have a moment to myself? It says that the Lord looked upon the crowd with compassion. With compassion. And he sat them all down. And he taught them. And after he taught them, he said, we need to feed them. John looked upon these things and he analyzed them. He was not like any other man. He goes a step further. Which our hands have handled. Which our hands have handled. He had the privilege of being physically near to even touch the living God, veiled in flesh. To, 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 to feel comfortable enough to recline his head upon his chest. To watch him as little kids would surround him and, and, and want to sit on his lap and, and, and talk to him. And John is declaring this to the reader, to you and I this morning. That life was manifested. That life which I heard, saw, analyzed and touched that life was manifested and I declare to you he says I'm declaring it to you the reader listen he declares it that eternal life that was with the father now that word eternal life is far greater than just eternal life living forever right Listen, yes, believers are going to have eternal life. But you know that unbelievers are also going to live eternally in just a different place. So he's not talking about just eternal life, but he's talking about the life eternal. The eternal being who was with the Father was manifested to them, to that generation. And we Declare it to you, he says. And he penned this down so that you and I today, in 2017, could read the account of John concerning our Lord. It wasn't, it wasn't just a fairy tale. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a story that people told. Here he is giving you his own account of the incarnation and the deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you see that he repeats it over and over. That which we have seen and heard, he says, that which we have seen and heard, declare to you that you, now catch it, that you may have fellowship. That you also may have fellowship with us. Now, now I haven't t- talked about this, but well, what does fellowship mean? You know, sometimes we say, hey, hey come, come on over and we'll have some fellowship. Meaning, meaning uh, hopefully he's going to have some food, right? Right? I mean, when we say, when we think fellowship, we think, we think food, coffee and donuts, right? Tea and biscuits, whatever, whatever your leaning is. Fellowship is far greater than food, even though food is a part of it sometimes. But the word fellowship there is communion, partnership, things in common. In fact, that wording, the Greek fellowship, was used of Andrew and Peter and James and John when they were fishermen. It says they were partners. They were partners in the fishing business. They, were, they, they had that in common. They worked together with a common goal. You see, we have fellowship. We can have fellowship with the apostles, with the saints of the apostles. Why? What do we have in common? Well, he he declares it to us. Listen, that you may have fellowship with us. But listen, he says, but truly, our fellowship, the apostles' fellowship, is with God the Father. Not just God the Father. And his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, what what, what he's getting at, listen, what was lost in Genesis chapter 2 is now restored by Jesus Christ and the work he did here on earth. 
What we lost, the communion and the fellowship and the communication and and, and the closeness we had with our Creator that was lost is now restored in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, in the man God, Jesus Christ. And the entire epistle will swing upon that truth. Because if we deviate from who Jesus is and what he is, we'll see that it all falls apart. And he says, I write these things, that your joy may be full. Now when we talk about joy, joy is is greater than just happiness. We can be happy for a moment. Something can make us smile, but it's fleeting. Joy is is long-lasting. Joy is, is rooted Listen, you look upon a, a believer, a, a believer of Jesus Christ, uh, one who stands in faith, and the winds of this world will come and blow against them and try to push them down, and they will be rooted upon the rock, and they will be unmovable. And they live a life of joy, regardless of what their circumstances are on the outside, regardless of the, of the hardships that we may have. They have joy. In the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And like I said, the entire epistle swings upon that truth of who our Lord is. And so we get to the practical side of it. The epistle of John is very practical. In fact, somebody called it this, and I think it's actually a very interesting way of putting it. The epistle of John could be called the epistle of certainty. Why? Well, the word that you may know happens over 30 times in this epistle. That you may know, that you may know, that you may know. It's very practical. It's also very black and white. There is no gray. He doesn't want, you don't want the reader to be confused concerning the topic that right now he's talking about fellowship. And he deals with other topics, but he wants you to be clear. And so here we have these statements. And we first are presented with the truth in verse 5. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you. Okay? Are you ready for the message? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the message that we heard from him. Who's him? Well, it's Jesus Christ, the one whom he saw. He heard, he handled. That God is light and in him is no darkness. Now, the, 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 the idea of light is important in Scripture. Because it, it speaks to us of the holiness of God. Our, our, our brother Tony brought up this morning there in Leviticus, right? It, it, it says that, that, that fire came out and consumed the burnt offering. And the people shouted it with fear. That the holiness of God is something that is serious. Timothy chapter 6 puts it this way. That God dwells in an unapproachable light. He is so holy that nothing defiled can ever approach him. God is light. The holiness of God. It says there is no darkness in him at all. The idea is that there's not one iota of it. He is absence of darkness. He is holy. He is pure. This is the message that God is holy. Now here's the claim. If you say you have fellowship with him, right? If you say you have fellowship with God, oh, you know, me and God, we we talk, right? But you walk in darkness. Now, now here's where it's black and white. You say you have fellowship with God, but you walk in darkness. You lie. Not, you know, well, you know, you're not that great of a person. You lie. And do not practice the truth. It's, it's point blank. There's no in between. If you say you have fellowship with God, if you commune with God, if, if If you consider yourself a follower of God, 
Yet if you walk in darkness. Now, I, I, I want to be clear in the, in, the, in the phrasing there. Walk in darkness. You know, he's going to deal with this in the later verses. But it, it's not that you, in a moment of weakness, stumble into darkness. And then step back out. He's talking about somebody who walks in. A commentator put it this way. It's one who abides and continues to walk in darkness. If the tenor of your life is filled with darkness, meaning you walk in a way, in a manner that pleases you and only you. Whatever, whatever, whatever fancies your way, you have. And you desire and you give yourself. And regardless of what people think, regardless of what the Bible says, regardless, I, I just want to be me. You know, I, I have an aunt. And she's not saved. And, and, and she will tell you, I'm a very spiritual person, she says to me. I, I pray to God every day. I pray to God every day, she says. But nothing in her life dictates that she walks in the light. Listen, it's not up for debate. You can think what you want to think. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior and you think you walk with the Lord, yet you walk in darkness, there's no debate about it. There's no debate. You're living a lie. You're living a lie and the truth, and you do not practice the truth. Now John gives us the true statement. Now saints, if you're here this morning and this is you, but if you walk in the light, but if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. You know, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful image. You know, John in his writings, sometimes uh, we can see from his writing that he is thinking of Old Testament truth. For example, in the Gospel of John, if you look at it in the Gospel of John, it, it, the Gospel of John could be broken down in trips. They went up to Jerusalem, and they went up to Jerusalem for a specific purpose, for a feast of Jehovah. And, and time and time again, they went, from, they went up from Galilee to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem back to Galilee, and, and always was concerning the Feast of Jehovah. These other writings in the Revelation of Jesus Christ, time and time again, you, you'll read about what those things that are in heaven, which the tabernacle were nothing but shadows of. And so as he wrote and penned Revelation, you'll see things that we, we, we read about in the tabernacle are there in heaven. And I, and I say all this to allude to this point here. I, I, and maybe it's a little fanciful, and maybe you would permit it, but maybe he's talking about the Day of Atonement in this instance. He's talking about the, that, that God is light, and in him is no darkness. Yet, in that Old Testament uh, 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 system... Only one day a year, one man could enter into the very presence of God, unencumbered. One day a year, there the high priest would, would, would pull the veil and step into the holiest of all. And in the holiest of all, there was the, 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 the ark and on top was that lid and the archangels who were, who were facing inward. I'm sorry, there were cherubim. They, they faced inward. And in the middle was the Shekinah glory of our Lord. The Shekinah glory, the light of the Lord remained in his presence there. That he could be with his people. And here a man would be able to enter into the very presence of God once a year with what? With blood. With blood. And he could not do it without blood. Here John's drawing your mind to the very same picture. You say you have fellowship with God. You say you have communion with God. Well, abide in the light as he is light. And you have fellowship with one another. But now listen, what does he say? 
and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from sin. You see, we, we have no stand or fellowship with God without the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll move quickly because we're out of time. We have the, that second false statement. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You know, we, we live in a, in a, in a society that's, that, that everything is relative, right? You know, the, the, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody, right, they'll say, it's okay. You know, what, whatever floats your boat, they'll say, you know. As long as you're not hurting somebody, you're okay with me. Like, it's, it's, sin's not an issue. Like, 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 like the, the, the reality that your sinful nature is condemning you to, to hell and eternity in hell is no big deal. As long as we're okay with our human brothers and sisters. If you're here this morning and believe that. I'll declare to you what, what John says here. You deceive yourself. You deceive yourself. Man, there are so many deceived souls in this earth who have no need for redemption, who think they're, they're perfectly fine. I'm good. Sin's not an issue with me. Oh, but if you're a believer, here's the true statement. If you're a believer, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so much can be said about that verse. As a believer, as one who claims to have fellowship with God, yes, we don't walk in darkness, but we do walk this earth. And we do stumble. You could be having a wonderful day and get in your car. And get on I-95. And that may ruin your day. And enough people cut you off that your, your mind gets angry and you may say something you regret. You know, that there's something to be said here, right? You know, the believer, when a, when a believer, when a person comes to uh, saving faith to the living God, he is redeemed and forgiven. Positionally before God, he is made right and just. So judicially, he is made just. In verse 9, we're not talking about judicial forgiveness. I want to be very clear about that. We're not talking about judicial forgiveness. We're talking about parental forgiveness. William MacDonald put it very eloquently. In this case, you're asking forgiveness from your father. Not because you lost your salvation. Because you have offended and broken that fellowship with the Father. The same way that you have earthly relationship. That works the same way. Listen, my wife, I'm married to my wife. And, and I may have a, a hard day at work and I come home and I am impatient. I am short. I am rude with her. Now she may be hurt by that and may be upset by that. Now that doesn't make her not my wife. She's still my wife. Right? I hope it is. Right? She doesn't like it when, when, I, when I use her as an example because she turns all red. I'm sorry. I'm apologizing for this already. But the point is that the fellowship has to be restored. I have to come to her and say, sweetie, I'm sorry. I was a jerk. I, I, I spoke out of term. I said things that I shouldn't have said, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And when she forgives me, that fellowship is restored, is it not? That's what 1 John chapter 9 is talking about. As a believer, as one who walks in the light, we may stumble and we may fall. But we have a gracious Father in heaven, don't we? Who is faithful. He's faithful. There's so much that could be said about that. And just. And he will forgive us. And that, re- that, that communion which was so good, that was broken, can be restored. And that relationship between father and son is restored. What wonderful truth that is. And here we have the last false statement. If we say we have not sinned, 
we make him a liar. You know, I haven't met any of these before, but there are people out there who say that I'm good. I've, I don't have a problem with sin. I'm, I'm good. I, I don't sin. And, and, and I walk in, in perfection. And I say, if that's true, let me meet your wife. Because she'll tell me the truth. Right? But it, it's a far more serious than that. If you say you have no sin, if you have not sinned, it says, you make him a liar. Well, God, how do we make him a liar? Well, God declared it, right? He says, there's none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you're here this morning and you think you're good, but you, you don't sin, check again. Check again. Because God is, God's word is not in you, as John here would say. And then lastly, very quickly, and I hate to skim over these last two verses because they're, they're, they're wonderful truths. Here's the correction to that. Listen, my little children, and I love the pastoral tones of this epistle, by the way. So much can be said about that. Here is this, this 80-something-year-old John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the apostle of love, writing this pastoral epistle to you and I. My little children, I write these things. Listen, that you, that you do not sin, so that you may not sin. He says, but if anyone sins. Now listen. I want to be clear on this. This is not opening the door so that you can't sin, right? Paul, Paul makes it very clear. He said, listen, hey, hey, should we sin that grace may abound? You know, if God's going to forgive me, if God's my father and I can do whatever I want and ultimately he's going to forgive me because he's gracious, we can do whatever we want. Paul says, God forbid. Here's John making it very clear. Listen, I write it so that you do not sin. But if you do, praise be to God, we have an advocate, an advocate with the Father. That word advocate, by the way, is the Greek word paraclete. Now, for you Greek scholars, you'll know that paraclete is used to describe the Holy Spirit, a helper. When God, Christ says that I will send a helper, he's using that word paraclete. One who helps, one who comes alongside, one who is ready to help. If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. How is it that he can be our helper? How is it that he can come alongside when we stumble and fall? How is it that he can plead our case before a holy and righteous God? Well, because he himself is the propitiation of our sins. That word propitiation is a big word, I know. But it's a beautiful word. That word propitiation means that he has satisfied what was required. God is holy and just. Is that true? That cannot change. And his holiness and justice declares that sin has to be dealt with. That sin has to be punished. God cannot, as a righteous judge, sweep things under the rug, as some earthly judges do, right? If you, if you, if you, you, you give them $100, guess what? The problems go away. No, God's not like that. God is just, and God is holy. And your sins and my sins cost something, by the way. They cost something. And he paid that cost. You know, that word propitiation is illustrated in many different ways in the Old Testament. You guys remember there when Joshua went in and, 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 and uh, the Lord told him to destroy Jericho. And he said to the, to, to the armies of Israel, I said, hey, listen, I want you to go in and I want you to utterly destroy. He says, but, but listen, of the goods of Jericho, do not touch because they are for the Lord. I, want, I don't want you to, 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 to keep the, the riches for yourself. And what did Achan do? Well, Achan saw some clothes, some pre-Jericho clothes, and said, wow, that's pretty nice. And he saw some gold, and he took it, and he buried it. And he said, looked around, and said, nobody saw me. Nobody saw me. So Joshua, thinking everything was good, 
Here comes the next city, a small little town, small little fortified city. He says, it's AI. We'll send a couple of troops. We got this. And they came back with a tail between their legs. And Joshua broke down before the Lord and said, what is going on? And the Lord revealed to him that there was sin in the camp. There was sin in the camp. You see, the, the, the children of Israel were being used as God's judge upon the lands and the inhabitants of the land. And he could not move forward until sin was removed from the camp. And the Lord revealed who it was. And after it was revealed, Achan and his family and everything that he had was destroyed. And it says that the anger of the Lord was turned from Israel. Did you catch that? That the anger of the Lord was turned from Israel. The actions of Joshua and the Israelites towards the one who had sinned propitiated the anger of the Lord. Did you catch that? The actions, as harsh as they were, by the way, upon Achan and his family, propitiated the anger of the Lord. Now I tell you, he was the propitiation for our sins. Past, present, and future. And not just ours only, but for the whole world. If every single soul that walked upon this earth turned to the living God in repentance, his work would be sufficient to redeem all. Because he paid, he took on the wrath of God upon his shoulder that you and I can have fellowship with the living God. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption. Blessed be his name this morning. Let us pray. Our Heavenly God and Father, we we marvel, Lord, that you... The living God would desire to have anything with us. As the psalmist would say, what is man that thou art mindful of him? What is man that thou visitest him? Yet, Lord, you sent your only son. You prepared him to redeem your creation and to restore what was taken. And, Lord, this morning we can we can gather together and we can know that we have fellowship with the living God. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for their sins, not ours only, but for the whole world. Lord, we thank you and praise you this morning. I ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you.